I walked up to this animal while it was taking its last few breaths and I put my hand on it and I said, thank you. And I just remember like stroking, stroking the bristles on her back and saying, thank you as she took her last few breaths. And, you know, it brought tears to my eyes. What's up, everybody? This conversation is with Velton Fry. Velton is a primitive arts teacher. He is an accomplished bow hunter. He makes his own recurve bows. He hunts the meat that he eats. He sleeps most nights of the year out under the stars. And he knows what's important in life. I really respect the guy. And this episode will get you psyched to go camping, to go hunting, to go fishing. And he's also a fellow flip phoner like me. I was talking about this in the last episode, but uh, I've been down in Chile for the last two weeks writing a story. And the day before I left, someone smashed my car window and stole my phone. So I was able to get a flip phone, but I've been relatively off the grid for the last couple weeks. So if any of you have feedback for the show, recommendations for new guests, you can get in touch with me on my website, kyle.surf, but I haven't been on the social medias. And god damn, it is liberating to take a breath from that. I really worry that um, the amount of constant input we get as a culture these days um, affects our ability to think deeply about any one thing. And I've been doing more reading and writing than I have ever done in my entire life as a result of not having a smartphone. There are some nice things about a smartphone, though. Maps, getting from place to place, is really helpful. I've been getting so lost lately. Uh, Podcasts, I haven't been able to listen to podcasts. Music, I haven't been able to listen to music. Those are all aspects that I miss. But the rest of it, I could really dial back. It feels a little bit like I'm going on a rice and beans diet, and I'm recognizing which foods I was addicted to, like the little uh, bowl of M&Ms that I would just go for because I was bored. That's kind of like Instagram. Like, oh, I'm just bored. I'm going to click on Instagram now. Not really because I want to, but because it's something to do rather than sitting with myself. But then there are other foods like podcasts that feel like vegetables, and I want those back in my life. Before we get going, I want to let you know that I was just on the Shameless Sex podcast with Amy Baldwin. She's been on my podcast a few times. She started her own. It is wonderful. So if you want to listen to me rant about psychedelics, sex, and squatty potties, you can head over to the Shameless Sex podcast. All right. I hope you all are enjoying your fall. I hope you're getting waves, getting in the outdoors. This episode will make you want to go out and get psyched. So, without further ado, please welcome Velton Fry. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. Standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. 
smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah, the perennial beer. <laughs> what do you think? Not bad. Yeah, Patagon just started making all kinds of products. They're doing they're doing beer, which we're drinking. We're doing they're doing uh, salmon. They're doing buffalo jerky. They're doing all kinds of cool stuff. Awesome. I think that food is a good point of entry into a lot of larger subjects absolutely you know these environmental issues conservation issues a lot of times it takes a product to get people interested in it right you know or an experience too i'm sure you've you've found this taking people hunting it takes that experience to then get them to start asking questions about their natural environment absolutely. that they wouldn't normally be curious about mm-hmm. yep <clears throat> yeah i definitely uh I definitely noticed the the food movement's been huge, and uh, now it's sort of branching out as well. It yeah. seems like uh, now people are starting to think about more aspects of, uh, as far as like now clothes, where are clothes coming from? Where is everything coming from? And uh, it's pretty awesome to see, but it's happening sort of slow to yeah. me, it seems. Yeah, well... A lot of the environmental and social impact happens before the product reaches your hands. Right. It's everything on the, the back end of it or on the front end of it, right? The people who were making your t-shirt or brewing your beer or at the slaughterhouse. Right. Most of the time we don't see any of that and it takes connecting that one degree of disconnection for people to, to have that oh, aha moment of that the product that I buy here is going to impact the world a lot differently than if I buy it over there. Absolutely. Yeah. You get to see that a lot too, taking people out uh, on, you know, teaching them primitive uh, skills, teaching them hunting. That must be cool for you to see. It is pretty cool. And uh, then... You know, it's funny because one of the things that I feel is uh, even now, you know, I've I've hunted and fished and provide a lot of my own food in that way for, oh, like at least 22, 23 years now. You know, I really try not to buy meat um, or fish unless I catch it myself. And uh, <clears throat> it's really funny because I'll go fishing and... You know, I'll bring up some beautiful fish, salmon, lingcod, halibut, whatever it happens to be. And it's such a beautiful, perfect creature. And I, I mean, I see it, I get to touch it, I feel it, um, and I end up taking its life. And I really appreciate it, and I don't want to waste it. And uh, I think it's really hard for us uh, when we go into the store and just buy something to have that same connection to it. And, uh, and when we don't have that connection to it, uh, we end up, you know, not really having the same relationship to it and then wanting to, you know, uh, it's a lot easier to waste it. Yeah. It's a lot easier to not have the same respect than if you took it yourself. So it's really, 
bringing that connection back to this is something that I've provided for myself. And like when I do that, I really don't want to waste any part of it because it's too great a gift for me. Yeah. And I think that it's a uh, core aspect of being human, really. A lot of we were talking about this the other night um, when we were up north about this kind of human search for meaning is ever present right now. What is it that I want to do with my life? What's my purpose? And we spent the day diving, getting some fish, uh, giving it to friends. And that circle feels like such a human experience. Whereas if you go to the store and you go get some M&Ms and you know, eat them for yourself, this is, this is a, a core difference between, getting, between um, killing something yourself mm-hmm. And going to the store and and getting it, there is a much greater uh, feeling of wanting to share it with friends and family. Absolutely. What do you yeah. think? Why do you think that is? I think that uh, most likely that just is human nature as well. Just uh, you know, especially if you were to go back and look at native tribes, um, you know, generally, but not always. Like the men were. That was the, your job, was to provide food for the family, to provide, provide food for the tribe. And uh, a lot of time um, that was given freely, you know, and to help the elders, to help everyone. And, uh, and you were the last to eat as the hunter, you know, most of the time, which I think is really cool because uh, uh, sharing it is as much of a gift as getting it, you know, to me. There's nothing I like more than, uh, yeah, being able to go out and make a harvest and then bring it back and share it with my good friends and my family. I mean, to me, that just feels right. And, uh, yeah, so it's really powerful for sure. It is. It is. What are you teaching most people when you're doing, uh, primitive gatherings? Is that, is that what you would call it? Primitive arts? Yeah. Gatherings? Yeah. Primitive skills. uh, What do those look like? Ancient arts. Uh, well, so I've been going to, I've been going to these gatherings for probably about 21 years. I think I did my first one around the time I was 20. I took some tracker classes, which are taught by Tom Brown Jr., and that was sort of my introduction. And then I found these <clears throat> these primitive skills gatherings where people would come and teach these ancient skills that you know natives all across the world um, had been using to live for hundreds of thousands of years and it's only in these last you know two three hundred years where we've really like phased that out and become this modern modern world where we're really not providing for ourselves anymore and we become very dependent on society and an outside world and unseen unseen resources and uh, and labors to provide us with um what it is we need every day and we sort of take it for granted well we really do <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah big time so what are you uh teaching people uh so for me personally like at these gatherings there's all kinds of different skills being taught from uh, you know basket making weaving um pottery uh, edible plants and medicinals and just a wide variety of skills that you can actually learn and uh, for me personally, my focus is mostly um, archery, 
and bow hunting is my main focus and then uh, sometimes I'll as well do brain tanning uh, and at this last at this last uh, class um, I helped out with our kids camp which is really fun to me I love working with the kids and uh, got to take them fishing a couple times and to me that's I wish I'd had that when I was a kid because uh, it's something I feel is really powerful is to be able to take kids out um, and show them like a, a pretty simple skill where, you know, we can go out and we can take just minimal equipment with us and we go and we dig worms and, and we'll get some termites and we'll get some wood grubs. And then from there, we'll go out on the lake um, and we can turn that into something bigger, you know, something that will really provide a good meal. What would natives uh, fish with, Native Americans? What, was, what were the tools that they would use? Well, I, I think it was different depending on uh, the situation. Right, I'm I mean, sure. I mean, all over there was uh, so many different methods that were used for fishing, uh, you know, from like primitive hook and line to spear and gig, um, dip net, uh, all these different ways, depending on the species and the the situation, but uh, oh, there's so many different, so many different ways. What would they use for line? Um, a lot of the time, uh, depending on where you were, you know, I know like in the Pacific Northwest, uh, cedar bark was woven into fishing lines quite a bit, and uh, and they used bone hooks, um, and and the nets they made also cedar bark um i mean just so time consuming to make but time is something that they had you know that's and, what life was about yeah yeah it was about going and and getting food and providing it for right. your friends and your family it was, it was a much much bigger part of life than than food is for us today absolutely yeah i mean we've become so sort of cut off of uh what it means to provide for ourselves today and i think that's probably one of the reasons that uh that we are sort of lacking meaning today is because we don't really do anything for ourselves anymore um i mean we do almost nothing for ourselves anymore like directly and i think that's a really big uh problem with society today is that uh you know we don't build our own shelters our houses we don't uh we don't we don't build um we don't build communities based on food uh we don't you know we don't make our own clothes yeah we we don't feed ourselves we don't do anything you know pursuant to like our daily needs and there's such a joy in that to me to like provide for yourself and that feeling of uh independence that comes with it and uh to me, I think that might just be one of the biggest problems in society today because when you can't uh, see and have a relationship directly with where each of these things came from to provide you with what you have, you really don't have any, uh, yeah, you don't have a relationship with it. You don't you don't care about it as much as when it's just in the store and you take it for granted. Right. When meat comes from the supermarket, there's, right. there's absolutely no respect for the animal. And I'm absolutely. speaking from the place of being a novice hunter. I went on my first bow hunting trip this last year. And the world that that has opened up for me uh, in learning about 
animals really i've been a meat eater my whole life and i've known such a small amount about those animals that i've been eating right and um there's a there's a respect as you said for um the animals when you are going when you're hunting them because you need to learn about their behavior uh where they're going to be why they act the way that they act Mm -hmm. um and then getting into the 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 gruesome parts of it too like you learn learning about the insides of the animals and what parts that you can eat it's um it's a just a fascinating human experience and i absolutely do it for my not because clearly not because i have to provide meat for my friends and family there's there are much more cost effective ways to do that today but the joy and the connection that i feel it is what makes it worth it yeah it's huge yeah i mean yeah i really feel like uh, <clears throat> i really feel as if you know people could have that experience um it'd be a much kinder world um you know if you imagine in days gone past, you know, that most, most, uh, most tribes, most communities were hunter gatherers and that's how they sustained themselves. And, uh, one of the things I think we talked about earlier was that, um, you know, as a, as a boy is coming into manhood, like one of the big things that he was to do was to hunt and to go out on a hunt for, you know, a large, large animal. Um, to try and provide the family with food. And in a lot of ways, you know, men, uh, boys and men have a definite aggressive side in all of us. And uh, it needs to be tempered. And taking taking a life is a, a really heavy experience. Um, and it really puts things in perspective, at least for me, um, just how fragile life is and uh you know if if i go out and i hunt say as a young man and i have this experience of taking the life of something i love let's say a deer uh you know that i've grown up around uh you know i know these deer and i take the life of something that i consider a brother every bit as important as my life um you know it's it's a really heavy experience because of course there's a lot of joy in being successful and there's also a lot of pain to it because it's um it's just something that uh i really feel that if more people experienced it we'd value life a lot higher and know how just know how important it is um can you bring me into a a hunt that was a heavy experience for you, uh, that made an impact on your life. Absolutely. Um, and specifically bow hunting from a bow that you make yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fuck. It doesn't get much more gangster than that. <laughs> I mean, you're not like, you're not hunting with a gun from a few hundred yards away. You're right. using a recurve bow where you have to be up close and personal with this animal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh... Uh, some people, some people have, uh, you know, some really good shooting skills and can shoot more accurate farther than I can. But for me, I really don't take any shots over 20 yards. Um, and only if it feels like I can really make that shot and I feel good about it. And, uh, yeah, I think probably for me, the most, the most powerful, um, 
Give me, give me a good story. Okay. I know you got hundreds <laughs> of these things, so just give me one. Um, well, I'd, I'd have to say, and I'll give you a little background first, but I'd say that, you know, the very first uh, wild pig that I ever took with a bow, which was the first large animal I ever took, period, um, was probably one of the most powerful experiences for me. Um, so just to give you a little background, though, um, you know, I was raised vegetarian, and uh, <clears throat> I didn't have anyone to take me fishing or to take me hunting, and but it was in me. I, I, I just say it was in my blood because, you know, I just remember at a very young age being really drawn to the water, like wanting to fish, even though no one exposed me to it. And uh, so fishing was sort of the first thing um, that I got into and uh, really didn't didn't know how to, you know, clean the fish or take care of the fish um, and then use them in a good way because no one really taught me. Um, and then, you know, when I was pretty young as well, you know, I'd have a, I got my first BB gun and, uh, you know, just this drive to hunt was in me, but I didn't know what was right and wrong. And I knew I had to hide it from my mom cause she'd be upset if she knew I was out there, you know, chasing, chasing birds and squirrels around with it. And, uh, it was always just a really powerful experience for me cause, not knowing what to do with it and not having anyone to mentor me um, and what I should, you know, be hunting and what I shouldn't be hunting. Like I was hunting songbirds, which, you know, I definitely would never do again because (laughs) (laughs) I just know that it's, uh, you know, I know now that that's that's not like a worthwhile meal to begin with and like why would I ever want to do that? But for me as a young child really wanting to be out hunting and that was something you know it's like a cat just like a just like a newborn kitten it's just in them and they want to they want to chase things they want to you know and so that's how I felt and uh, you know it wasn't until quite a bit later that um you know I got back into archery I'd been into it as a kid my mom actually got me into archery but you know definitely not into hunting and and uh, I think I was about 20 when I really got back into archery and started shooting a lot. And then, uh, you know, the next step was I wanted to go hunting. And uh, so I ended up going uh, down to a private piece of property um, uh, south of Santa Cruz down by Fort Hunter Liggett. And uh, we went on a wild pig hunt. And I'd been a couple times and been unsuccessful. And then I think it was either the third or fourth time that, that I went out and, uh, there was probably, oh, I don't know, three or four, three or four other hunters down there as well. We're all staying in a little cabin together on a big ranch and, uh, we'd all sort of go our separate ways, um, out looking for wild pigs. And, uh, I remember then I was pretty green and really didn't know what I was doing and uh so one morning <clears throat> one morning i was out by myself um at the edge of a big field and really not knowing where to go and um i just remember like I, it's dark out it's cold i was trying to stay warm and uh i just remember thinking to myself i, I need to figure out where where i'm going to go before it gets light because you know pigs will come out from feeding all night and uh, and they'll go back 
back into the hills and uh, go wherever they're going to bed down and then they'll sleep all day and it's really hard to find them. So I just knew that I needed to figure out a place, even though I really didn't know what to look for or where to go. And meanwhile, while I'm thinking this, um, I see this shooting star just streak across the sky and go over this ridge top, and, and I'm like, oh, awesome, you know. And I looked and was watching that, and that was over, and so I'm still asking myself this question, and it happened again, same direction over this ridge top. And, uh, you know, I was pretty dense back then. I think it happened three times in a row same place just streaked across this one ridge top that you know looked looked to be a couple miles from me two three miles and uh <clears throat> at one point i'm like huh i wonder if that's a sign you know and and so then in my <laughs> in my mind i said well if this happens again i'm just going to get up and walk that way and it did which is pretty incredible it's like, a lot of shooting stars in a row yeah in the same direction so i got up got up off my butt and i just started walking and um, I got up onto this ridge line and just started walking down this ridge. And uh, actually, the farther I got, I started to notice what looked to me to be fresh pig sign. And uh, and I, what does that look like? Uh, there was a little bit of rooting around um, tracks. There were some tracks and uh, looked pretty fresh. It was early spring, still pretty cold down there, but... Uh, you know, everything was still pretty wet, so pretty obvious to see tracks um, and sign in there, and it sort of led me down a little side hill, and um, I watched for a while, and, you know, the more I seen, the more I realized, oh, you know, this just happened. Like, these pigs were just here. So I, it sort of snapped me out of my complacency of, like, oh, I'm trying to stay warm and got things going on in my head, and it's like, okay, it's time to be present like pay attention and so I really started listening and looking and uh, I just continued following this trail where I was finding all this sign and it sort of led me out into a, a little clearing sort of as the ridge dropped off and I ended up sitting there uh, probably till 10 in the morning and I didn't actually see anything but when I got out there you know there was a lot of sign and it looked really fresh to me so I figured, okay, well, this is where I'm going to come back in the evening. Um, which I ended up uh, hiking back to the cabin. Um, and, you know, pretty much we get up real early and we go out and we hunt those those uh, those first three hours of daylight. And that's, that's usually your window uh, where pigs are still active. I mean, not that they can't be later, but usually, generally speaking, that's when they'll be out. So, so at around 10 o'clock, I hiked back to the cabin and, uh, that's, that's when we'd go back and take a nap and get ready for the evening hunt. And, uh, of course all the other hunters were already there and everyone's asking me like, well, do you see anything? Do you see anything? And I just sort of instinctively knew to say no, <laughs> you know, and they all have the same answer. No one really wants to give up their spot. And, uh, and so think we made a cooked a meal or something like that and then uh everyone sort of took took a nap and I was planning on getting up around five o'clock and going back out um I was sleeping on this little couch in the cabin and I remember waking up around two o'clock in the afternoon and it gotten really overcast and uh I just had this feeling 
that I should get up and, and go out at that time. And so I got my stuff together and tried to slip out of the cabin without waking anyone up and uh, started hiking back to the spot. And uh, it was funny because I was sort of goal-oriented of just get to that spot and then tuck in and then, then I'll be hunting. And so I was sort of walking a little fast and uh, sort of looking down and not really paying too much attention like I should have been to my surroundings. And I caught movement in front of me out of my periphery and... I seen a pig like just cross right over the ridge trail that I was on and go down the hill on the other side and that sort of again snapped me out of my complacency and like woke me up into my body and like oh wow <laughs> I completely was not aware you know up until that point and uh that pig was like a ghost it just sort of appeared and I caught a glimpse of it and it was gone um but I ended up uh, trying to track it down where it went, and it took me down into this gully and uh, down in this little uh, ravine at the bottom of this canyon. And it was so choked with uh, brush, you know, chemise, manzanita, um, that a lot of the time I had to crawl on my hands and knees. And uh, so I got down. I finally got all the way down to the bottom, and I was crawling on my stomach through these little tunnels that the pigs have made and when I did get to the bottom I found you know I found a few tracks down there and uh, so I kept crawling kept crawling and I came out in a little bit of an opening maybe 20 yard diameter down the bottom of this ravine and there was quite a few intersecting trails right there so I figured okay well it's still early you know it was probably about three o'clock by that time three thirty. not sure but I decided, oh, I'll just tuck in right here and watch for a while. And um, and that's what I did. And I probably stayed till maybe 5, 5.30. And, you know, I was definitely there for a couple hours, and I didn't really hear or see anything. And uh, I, I just remember my mind saying, oh, you know, you need to get to that other spot where you were this morning because that was uh, there was a lot of sign there. And that's where you should be. And I'd, I'd had a arrow taken out and knocked on my string. So I took it off and put it back in my quiver and put my butt pack back on, my little hunting pack. And I got up to head back up to the ridgetop and follow that down to the, to the spot I'd been that morning. And I just had this, uh, this feeling and this voice inside me that said, sit down and stay here. And, um, I said, well, it's still early. I, I can hang out here for a little while longer. And so I got back and tucked into the spot where I'd been sitting under a little bit of brush, uh, trying to remain sort of hidden if anything came out and I got another arrow out, put it on my string and, and just got ready and, and sat back down and, uh, got ready to wait for a while again. And I, I'm not sure how much time went by, but <clears throat> my mind started playing those games again with me and telling me, you need to get to this other spot. So again, I, I was getting anxious and I packed everything up and got ready to hike back up the ridge and started walking. And again, I just had this feeling and, and this voice inside me say, stay put. So I did. And uh I think I wrestled with this three times, and the third time 
it was really starting to get dim. Uh, the sun, sun was going down and <clears throat> I think I was real anxious and, uh, felt like I really needed to get to that spot I was that morning. And so again, I packed everything up, got up to walk away, took a few steps. And this time the voice, and it was my own voice that I was hearing. It was really interesting and a feeling, just a really powerful feeling said, stay here. This is the spot. And, and so I think, uh, I think I made some compromises with my mind and I told myself, well, it's getting, starting to get dark and I probably wouldn't make it to that spot anyway before it was too dark anyhow. So sit your ass down and which I did. And, uh, I think it was about another 20, 30 minutes and there was just a crescendo of bird activity happening all around me. And I kept thinking I was hearing it you know, large animals coming down these trails and then realizing most, most of it was birds in and out of the brush. Um, when I thought I was hearing footsteps and so I was on pretty high alert and I'm sitting there and I'm watching and I'm waiting. And, uh, at some point during all this activity around me, I caught a glimpse across this little clearing from me and noticed that, um, a pig was coming out of the brush and I've seen its head at first and it uh, basically it started across the clearing and I started to draw my bow and it spun its head over and sort of looked in my direction and I had to freeze with my bow drawn halfway back and the animal stared for I don't know it was probably only five ten seconds but it seemed like a lot longer because I'm trying to hold my bow back and uh, I remember I remember it taking a few more steps and me drawing my bow back a little bit farther and the same thing happening where it looked at me and now I'm really starting to shake but I can't move um, or it's going to notice me and uh, I think about then that it was a, it was a pretty good, good sized sow, maybe 150, 175 pounds. Uh, think she realized something wasn't quite right and really started to get out of there and I was able to just draw my bow back and come back to my anchor point for a split second and I let my arrow fly and uh, you know I really looking back at it I think that the way it happened was meant to be um, not having the skills that I have now but uh, I didn't hit where I was aiming um, I hit real high above the spot, but I actually hit hit this sow in, in the spine and she fell down right in front of me and couldn't move. Um, and I actually had to walk up and take another shot to finish it. And it was just such a powerful experience to me. I walked up to this animal while it was taking its last few breaths and I put my hand on it and I said, thank you. And I just remember like stroking, stroking the bristles on her back and saying thank you as she took her last few breaths. And, you know, it brought tears to my eyes. And uh, it was, yeah, it was um, a really powerful experience for me. I mean, it was a mix of excitement and sadness and, um, I don't know, pride and as well just like I've just taken this life and um, this feeling of gratitude and I just remember uh, I remember sitting with her for probably 15 minutes 
and just saying thank you and praying, you know, praying, giving a lot of thanks. And um, at some point I realized, you know, it's like it's getting really dark and I need to deal with this. <laughs> and I'm probably, I don't know, a mile from, mile and a half from the camp. And, oh, wow, okay, so suddenly I realized, like, I got to act. And uh, so I ended up field dressing this animal. Uh, took my jacket off, um, got my butt pack, got my knife out, and I cleaned this animal best I knew. Um, I saved the heart, I saved the liver. Uh, and then realized, like, I have a long way to get back to camp and have to drag this animal. <laughs> and uh, so I tied a rope, tied a rope around its front legs and around its snout. And I just started this drag, which probably took me, well, I don't know, better part of two hours. And uh, I just remember the whole time dragging it back, like how excited I was to tell everyone at the camp, you know, and show them this animal. This is my first animal that I've ever taken. And, uh, and so, of course, you know, all that happened, got back. Everyone was really excited for me. Everyone... Everyone there's uh, shooting compound bows, you know, real modern equipment, and uh, I, I don't think they thought that what I was using was actually capable of doing the job. And so I ended up uh, actually being the only one to get anything on that weekend, so that felt really good. And uh, <clears throat> I just remember, you know, after all that, excitement had worn worn off you know as the week went by you know I was pretty high on that for yeah, the better part of a week but then I started to think back about the whole experience you know from beginning to end and just how powerful it was to me and I really feel like I was guided in that into that spot um, and just how powerful it was for me to like actually realize that that inner voice that was within me, you know, to like trust it, and I mean, <laughs> that was a fucking story. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think intuition comes from? Oh man, you talked about that guiding voice a yeah. number of times throughout that story. Yeah, what you know, what is that? Because that's something that that you clearly uh, have had and have yeah. also cultivated. I've had quite a quite a bit of experience with uh, intuition, and a lot of it a lot of it has been when I'm out hunting or fishing. Um, sometimes you just wake up with a feeling, and and it feels right, and it feels like this is the day. And you, you know, I think the biggest part of it is to surrender your will when you go out in the woods. Like if you really want to connect and be able to hear that voice you can't really have um an agenda maybe an know. agenda or expectations right you know you just really i think that's the most powerful lesson to teach new hunters is um you know enjoy your time out in the woods it's the journey it's not the it's not the destination and just to really um go out there give your thanks you know, give your thanks for being in a wild place and, you know, being alive with it and let yourself be guided and don't be so um, goal oriented that you miss what's around you. And I think if you can do that 
and like literally just let go of um, your will, you know, which is like, this is what I want to do. Of course, this is what I want to do, but, but let go of it and just let it come to you. Uh, you know, everything, every time I'm able to do that successfully and just relax into the moment and be present, um, it's amazing what happens. Super amazing. And I really feel like that's, I mean, that's a gift. That's an extreme gift that I've learned and I still struggle with having faith in it. Right. Um, but every time, every time, whether I'm successful or not, that I have surrendered, I'm always like, um, taught a pretty powerful lesson. Yeah. Yeah. You seem like a very connected (laughs) dude. (laughs) So what do you see as moral and immoral ways to hunt? Um, hmm. well, I think, you know, I really feel like today that, uh, hunting has a really bad name because most of us are going about it in a pretty ugly way. I, um, I think it's a, it's a combination of things. I think it's firstly that there are less hunters now yeah. than there used to be. So most people have, um, a very, you know, rightly so in many ways, um, negative connotation with, with people who enjoy killing living right. animals, right? And then secondly, you have these big media storms where um, you have like the Cecil the Lion incident, right? Where people, everyone thinks that hunters are people who want to go out and kill yeah. lions and it's this, you know, dudes who drive big trucks and have small dicks and it's all <laughs> about the killing. Uh, yeah. And I th- I think that it's it's obviously more nuanced than that. But from your uh, perspective, what do you see um, as what do you see as ways to do it right and ways to do it wrong? Hmm. Well, I would just say that, you know, hunting, hunting in general nowadays has definitely become sort of ugly uh, and driven by ego, you know, and like who can kill the, the deer with the biggest rack and, you know, and yeah, very ego driven and uh and that's even being promoted you know i mean it's definitely being promoted and it's a far cry from uh providing meat for the family which is what it was all about um you know these hunters they get to go back to camp and make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and chips and drink beer you know they don't have to have this it's not something that they have to have or their family's going to starve and it's definitely, yeah, I just really feel like it's become very ego-driven and, and that's putting a really bad name on hunting. So, but at the same time, I think if if you were to encounter any one of these individual hunters who might be acting this way and really ask deep questions and if they were to be honest, I I really feel like... Uh, they would give you some answers that would not be the norm. Um, yeah, just as far as... What do you mean by that? Well, I just really feel like really deep down inside every hunter is this basic respect and love for animals and love of the outdoors. Um, but within our society now, like, there's these images to maintain and and being vulnerable and like you know talking about what actually comes from your heart is not it's sort of perceived as weakness 
And so I just feel that, uh, I just feel that if in a safe space, these people were to be honest with you or be honest with themselves, they would all pretty much be saying the same thing, which is that really they do love these animals. They, um, uh, you know, they do have a lot of respect and they love the outdoors, even if their actions don't necessarily show it. And I feel, you know, I, I think today in society that hunting sort of looked as a very primitive uh, <laughs> action, you know, like we don't need to do that anymore. But it's probably one of the the purest, um, hmm, probably one of the purest things that we can do as right. people is well, to provide food. And, and uh, I think... I think a lot of people probably couldn't even put into words what their feelings are about it. So, yeah, very, very much so. It's like um, I would equate it almost to trying to describe a psychedelic trip. Words <laughs> are a very imperfect way to describe an experience <laughs> like that. And as you said, that's this flood of emotions, right? After you take an animal's life, and and I think that you did a great job uh, illustrating the whole journey, right? Um, a lot of people probably think that hunting is just about going out boom oh there's an animal i'm gonna take it and then we're done right. whereas <clears throat> as you know a lot of times it, it you're unsuccessful right and there are a lot of uh boring moments there are a lot of yep. uh cold moments uh hungry moments hungry moments <laughs> so what animals will you take and will you not take uh well for me i just feel like you know being that this is where I live, um, I'm not real. I'm not real big on going out of state and hunting animals that we don't really have here. Though I did go to Alaska a couple times and hunt there, but that was always sort of a dream since I was a kid to to be in Alaska and to fish and to hunt. And so that's the one place that I really have gone. Everything's so big up there. It's amazing. <laughs> Alaska is absolutely awesome. Um, so coming from a standpoint of uh, wanting to provide food for myself and do it in a way where, you know, it's actually a boon to me and it's not like I'm putting more money out there than like if I just had to buy the meat, right? To me, to me, it's really important that I provide my own food as far as meat and fish goes. And, and a lot of the time I don't have anything and, and I'm, pretty much eat vegetarian at those times um so for me you know it's important for me to hunt and to fish locally for the most part so um uh, deer wild pigs um, turkeys small game rabbits squirrels uh, quail uh, that kind of thing is <clears throat> usually what i'm out hunting here in california and uh, as well as as well as the fish that we have. And, yeah. You know, we've, we've got a pretty amazing abundance of foods. California is such an incredible state. Yeah, it is. It's so. just gorgeous, man. <laughs> I mean, amazing. we were up in the Redwoods the other day, and then we went diving, and it's just, it's abundant. It, it is. It really is. When you think about places in the world, you know, we have yeah. these streams where <clears throat> fish are swimming up them, then there are pig, and there's, mm -hmm. there's deer. It's just <laughs> such a gorgeous spot. It is. It's, uh, it's amazingly abundant considering 
what our impact is even now and and that it can still maintain what it has is pretty impressive um and you know our our resources are dwindling and uh you know a lot of people feel that um you know maybe that what we as hunters and fishermen do is is taxing it even heavier and i'd also say that uh you know as hunters and fishermen we're like sort of the people on the on the forefront seeing seeing what's happening and a lot of people don't realize that um hunters and fishermen are some of the greatest conservationists of all people and that's how in a lot of ways the environmental movement started yeah uh, teddy roosevelt yeah break that down for people <clears throat> for, for someone who, who's not a hunter who doesn't know about this but is an environmentalist uh mm-hmm. But doesn't see hunters as as conservationists. What? Uh, how would you approach that conversation? Um, I think what I would say is that, uh, you know, honestly, like, who really knows more about the animals um, than the person who hunts them? Uh, the people who put in hours and hours and hours, day after day, sitting in a tree stand or in a ground blind, watching, 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 and waiting and seeing animals interact and uh and really like learning and studying their habits um so you can be a better hunter and you know i really just feel like um most hunters do have a really really deep respect for the animals that they hunt and uh and you know, but, you, but you're still hunting animals someone yeah. someone might say to you well why don't you go become an ecologist right uh, well, and that's one outlet, but, you know, I would also say that, you know, some of the biggest environmentalists out there, they all live in the city, you know, and it's like, they're not really doing anything for themselves again, as far as, uh, providing for themselves. And, you know, they want to protect what's beautiful what they see around them is beautiful, uh, like the landscape, the wildlife, Um, but it's sort of in some ways a detached perspective because we still have to eat, um, whether you're vegetarian or you eat meat, uh, you know, your food comes from somewhere. Um, if you drive a car, those resources came from somewhere, that fuel came from somewhere, the clothes you wear, they were made somewhere, they use resources, but a lot of it's a detached, uh, impact. Like we don't realize that no matter who you are and what you do, you're making an impact on this planet. Um, and I really feel that when the impact is far off uh, and you can't see it, then you're sort of powerless to change it. And what do you say to people who who are saying, well, yeah, but you're, you're taxing pig and deer populations by hunting them? Um, well, I would, I would also say that, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, Fish and Wildlife does do a pretty good job of uh, monitoring monitoring wildlife and what's taken and uh, and and knowing what's an acceptable limit um, and putting rules on that as far as what you can take and what you can't uh, when the seasons are open and when they're not. Um, so how does that work? Like, let's say I want to go uh, hunt a blacktail deer this summer when the season opens how does that work 
Um, okay, so in California, uh, you're only allowed two deer per year per person. Um, a lot of people go unsuccessful, but uh, the whole state is broken up into several, well, quite a few different zones. Um, and some of these zones are like really highly sought after just because of the animals they produce. Like where? Uh, like some of the Eastern Sierra areas are known for producing these really big mule deer that a lot of people want to hunt. But if they just let everybody who wanted to go there and hunt, um, that resource wouldn't last very long. So a lot of the areas are, are a lottery where you have to apply, um, you have to put in an application and if they draw your name, you know, you can be one of these lucky people who actually gets to hunt that area. Um, in the zone where we are, uh, Monterey, Santa Cruz County, um, all the way up Sonoma into a good portion of Mendocino and East, um, is called the A zone. And you can actually buy, um, a deer tag over the counter and, and then hunt, hunt the archery and general seasons. And you can get two of those. You could get two of those. Yeah. And is that different for archery and, uh, rifle? Um, you can buy what's called an archery only tag, which, uh, means you're only going to hunt archery under that tag. You're not allowed to use a rifle. Um, but it lets you also hunt some other zones, uh, like the B and D zones that, uh, that you'd have to get a separate tag for if you're going to hunt with a rifle. Right. And where are those zones? Uh, those are more Northern areas, more, uh, Northern and Eastern of the A zone. Um, so up into Humboldt and I, th I believe like Trinity counties. Uh, and is that because bow hunting is more difficult to be successful? Way. Way more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Way more difficult. You know, they know that, uh, the success rate for archery is probably, oh, five, five percent of what it is for a rifle hunter. And so, so we'll definitely let the bow hunters, uh, branch out a little bit. But because you have to be so much closer to the animal. Oh yeah, and it's hard. I mean, it's really hard to really get within that animal's safe space. Especially if you're using a fucking recurve bow like you are. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's awesome because, um, uh, man, just just the excitement of you know we put in long long hours waiting waiting or stalking and you know, so many close calls and so many, um, yeah, really close interactions. You know, I, I'd say probably right now, you know, in the 20 years I've been hunting wild pigs, I've probably been, I've probably been within 20 yards of, uh, you know, wild pigs, like literally thousands and thousands of times. And out of that, it's a very small percentage where I'm actually um, able to take a shot. Why? Uh, well, you know, when I'm bow hunting, uh, there's really only a couple spots to aim for on the animal, um, that has a high success of actually killing it. What are those cleanly. spots? Uh, usually it's a, a, either a broadside shot where you're aiming right behind, right behind the front leg, um, and, or a quartering away shot where the animal's angled away from you. And those are those are pretty much the two shots that bow hunters will take on you know large animals, 
And uh, so many times I'll be within my accurate shooting distance, but an animal never gives me a clean shot at that area. Um, or, or the animal will never like put its head down or have its head behind something where I can actually draw my bow because you make a lot of movement. It's, uh, you know, with a rifle, all I have to do is pull the trigger, which is no movement at all, <laughs> relatively speaking. And you can do it from way beyond the animal's really aware zone. So to actually be able to make a shot on an animal with a bow takes a lot of patience and commitment because so many times, yeah, I could make the shot if only the animal would give me the opportunity. Right. And rifles <laughs> also will hit the animal. A bullet will hit the animal with more impact. Yeah. So a lot of times it'll knock the animal over, whereas absolutely an arrow will pass right through the animal. And if it's a clean shot, a lot of times the animal won't even know that it was hit. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, that's that's definitely happened a couple times to us where, um, where we haven't hit any bone as the arrow passes through ribs, goes right through lungs, and that's a very clean kill. Because um, there's no adrenaline that the yeah. animal will produce. They'll just look around and say, what, what, what right. was that? Right. Um, I, I would say that 90% of the time when they're hit, uh, they immediately run. Um but if you've made a clean shot and you've penetrated both lungs with your arrow, um, I'd say 90% of the time they don't go more than 50 yards and they, uh, and they usually are dead in under a minute. It's a really clean kill. And, uh, so, so just to round, round out the, the little hunting bit, where does your money go when you get a deer tag? Um, well, I'm not exactly sure where it makes its way, but you're actually... Slushy machines for the <laughs> California fishing game. <laughs> um, I would say that uh, a lot of it, you know, goes into, you know, paying their employees and, uh, you know, keeping up their infrastructure and... And, and, and their ability to monitor animals yeah. as well, right? So that, yeah. th so that they can keep track of how many there are. Absolutely, yeah. Right. So there's a lot of studies done, and money's going towards studies, and um, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't break it down for you where all the money goes, but we'll get a pie chart at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so grown up vegetarian. Yep. What do your parents think of all this hunting? Um. Well, I wasn't really uh, into uh, showing it. <laughs> Until you know, I was in my 20s. Right. And then, uh, you know, my mom, like, actually really thought it was pretty awesome. Um, yeah? She was into it? Yeah. That's cool. She was pretty into it. So, so she was really happy when I would actually, you know, come back with something. And I sort of got, sort of got her into eating a little wild game as well. Even though she was vegetarian? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And, uh... And she really enjoyed it. What did you get in? What did you, uh, what was the first meal? You know, I think the first thing that sort of brought her back into it was salmon. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice uh, transitionary species. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> show, her, show her a deer's head for the first meal. <laughs> hey, this is what we're eating, venison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it, people have much less empathy for fish. 
True. <laughs> we're, we're so okay with fishing, but as soon as they get eyebrows or they're cute or there's been a Disney movie that's made about them, absolutely, people have a way harder time with it. And I do too. I mean, yeah. to, to be honest, like I'm just getting into this yeah. and there are certain animals where I'm like, oh, but that was, I really liked yeah. that movie when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me as well. I mean, uh, and, and at the same point, you know, I've caught fish before and held them and just like been appreciating how beautiful they are and uh and there's they're such powerful creatures yeah a salmon yeah damn those things are badass yeah they are and you know i just remember holding some of these fish and looking at just how beautiful they are and how sort of perfectly adapted to their environment you know i mean how so uh let's talk about salmon for a little while okay uh, well, salmon and, and fish in general just being adapted to the environment they live in, as well as, you know, most wildlife on four legs. Uh, you know, I mean, if you look at any animal other than us, uh, they are just being and doing what they do. And it's it's basically, uh, you know, mouth to plant or mouth to bait or, yeah. or ah, this thing's trying to kill me <laughs> <laughs> or I'm going to kill the shit out of this thing. <laughs> yeah. I I'm mean, hungry. I want to have sex. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, they're just a very direct impact life. They're just doing yeah. what they do. There's no irony. Yeah. And, and then you look at us and it really feels like we're aliens. I mean, we need so much. Um, we have to take from so many other things for us to survive. We have tools, we have toys, we have all these things that we use. Um, so many people have garage, you know, garages full of crap that they don't need. Uh, yeah, just such as excess from living a simple life compared to what I see with animals. And, and so with fish, you know, like I was saying, I've held some of these fish before in my hands and just been looking at them and appreciating them, thinking what a perfectly beautiful animal this is and i'm going to take its life right and and then thinking to myself what makes me more important than this animal and my answer is really nothing you know there's there's really nothing about me that's more important than this animal um but i'm making a choice to take this life and for me that's really humbling um and makes me think about my own life and you know, someday my my time's gonna come and I'll no longer be here in the flesh. And uh but yeah, really just looking at it and why how is it that I'm more important than this animal and my answer is I'm not, you know, and to know that and to feel that that this creature that I'm gonna kill is every bit as as important as I am. And uh, that's very humbling. Hmm. So why take its life then? Because uh, I know that one way or another I need to eat. Um, whether I do it in a way that's a direct impact, like taking the life of that animal to eat, or me going into a store and being disconnected about it and not having that experience. Right. And uh, I mean, there's uh, w when we're talking about suffering too there is um a very minimal amount of suffering that that usually happens with 
with hunting for the animal. There's a, there's a period of suffering, but if you compare that to a pig that has lived shoulder to shoulder with thousands of other pigs, not seeing daylight in a dark factory farm, being pumped full of antibiotics, getting fattened yeah. up so they can't move their muscles, they can't be in their natural environment. That is a life of suffering. Right. And it's, I think we're going to be judged very harshly by future generations right. about the way that we treat, treat animals. animals today. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it's fucked up when yeah. you see what goes on in those places. Right. Like if you're, even if you're driving down the five, the highway yeah. five and, uh, and you get into that zone where it starts smelling, <laughs> it starts smelling like yeah. death. Harrison ranch beef. Fuck. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty gross. Oh, man. That's pretty gross. Yeah. Um, Ooh, I just got the shivers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I've definitely done a lot of thinking about that. And um, So you don't eat meat from the market, from the store? I don't buy meat from the store. I will, uh, you know, from time to time, if I'm just going out to eat, yeah, yeah. I will order some meat. But I, I don't actually buy meat um, or fish that I'm going to bring home and cook. Um so I really try to stick to that as best I can. Right. Um, yeah, because I just, that, that's a big reason that I, I want to hunt is because I want to have that direct experience and I don't want to be a part of that industrial meat factory that is, you know, what most people are eating. Fuck, I just had a, a guy on, uh, I don't know if the interview is going to come out before or after this, but he's a, an antibiotic Specialist, uh -huh. um, he's a doctor, and he was talking about how we have had this this one antibiotic that's kind of been our silver bullet because we've saved it and it, it hasn't been um, used a ton. So if you get a bad staph infection and need that hail mary home run antibiotic, this was the one. I forget the name of it, huh. but he said that China just started using it in their meat. <laughs> Oh, awesome. And he said it's the, the stupidest <laughs> thing. Um, and they, they use it um, apparently to fatten up the animals more quickly that, and, mm. and uh, protect them from certain diseases. But I, I had no idea that that was one of the uses for it, was to actually fatten them up Wow! Uh, at a more rapid rate. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. And, yeah, and so I really, you know, I really emphasize uh, empathize with the people that, um, you know, have chosen not to eat meat for all those reasons. And I totally get it. You know, it's like, um, I totally understand what those reasons are. Um, you know, animal cruelty sucks and, and that's a big thing for me too. So, you know, and people look at me and they're like, well, but you cause suffering as well. And it is, you know, that is part of it. Um, but I'm taking responsibility for, for what I'm doing. And, and it is hard to, it is hard to explain to people who, you know, they get very angry. They get very angry about this, you know, and it's like, it's a, it's a very soft spot for a lot of people when you talk about killing. And I just... I just always have to bring the conversation back to the fact that we all kill, whether we do it directly or indirectly. Um, if you're a vegetarian, you know, and you're buying your food at the store, uh, you know, 
a lot of that used to be wildlife habitat that's now being farmed and animals are being excluded. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, it's complicated. It's complicated. It is complicated. It's really complicated. Yeah. And you, and you need to take responsibility for what you're doing and no one's perfect. Uh, but I, I do think that a lot of joy of from life can be derived from taking responsibility for your actions, whether that's hunting or whether that's having a tough conversation with your girlfriend or your coworker that you haven't been willing to have. Right. It's right. it is this this uh, willingness to to directly confront a situation. Yeah. Right. But it's but a lot of life has become so comfortable that we don't need to to confront a lot of what we do right Right. and uh you know we just keep searching for the happy moments and we push all the other shit to the side exactly i mean uh in a way i sort of liken it to when i see a no war for oil bumper sticker on somebody's car you know and it's like huh (laughs) (laughs) i mean you know it's just interesting to me because I really try to be a critical thinker a lot of the time. And, you know, thinking about that, it's like, you know, we're using these resources uh, in a lot of ways, you know, I look, just as an example, it's like, you know, none of us who live here on the California coast want to see offshore drilling. We don't want to see the Arctic being drilled for oil. Um, but but we're all driving cars, you know, and it's like this, it's sort of this conundrum. Right. Yeah. I mean, we are, and there are, uh, decisions that we can make on a daily basis that do impact our natural environment. And I think that food, I think that what we eat and where we put our money are the two biggest, two leverage points in our daily lives that we can, and decisions that we can make. That being said, who's not going to drive a car, right? There, there are decisions (laughs) that need to be made by policymakers, whether that's, um, government or whether that's companies that, that decide that there are certain products that should not be put on the shelf because they're giving people cancer. Right. right. Those shouldn't even be options on the shelf. Unfortunately, right now we live in a, a world where you go into the supermarket and some of that shit is poisonous. Absolutely. Some of that shit is killing you and shouldn't be on the shelves. Right. And there should be more options available to us. Most people want clean energy yeah. and would be willing to um, to take that to, to take that next step. But there but industry needs to shift as well. So I think that yeah. there there are. Um, a lot of greedy people in the oil industry who who purposely don't want anything to change because they're still making a ton of money getting energy the way that we've been getting it for the last hundred years. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I put partial responsibility on the inv- individual, but I also absolutely put responsibility on elected officials that w- were put in places of power to to make sure that we don't have poison on our on our shelves and Absolutely. we are we are moving in a more moral direction right uh yeah i i totally see that and uh you know in the society that w- we've been brought up in now uh it's very hard to go backwards in any way because you know this is the pace that everyone's keeping it's either keep up or you know succumb it's like it, it's pretty hard to to be able to function in our society without uh, 
having some very basic things that everyone else is using and takes a pretty uh, radical individual to like go against that grain um you know and and we all like find our compromise in there somewhere right um but but yeah it's <clears throat> just to get people really thinking about it though you know to like uh, it just seems as so many of us have like uh, these knee-jerk reactions um, to what's going on without really thinking it through very deeply. And uh, I, Yeah, I think that the, uh, to your point, it is a balance. Uh, and I mean, not to plug my sponsor too much, but we are drinking Patagonia <laughs> beer right now, yeah. right? Which is a, a perennial beer um, yeah. that doesn't require tilling. Um, and I do think that, you know, we can still drink beer, right? But we're choosing an op, we're choosing a beer that's having less of an, env- an environmental impact. And right. I think that they, they are a shining example of, of a, a company that is, has made tough decisions and expensive decisions and are fucking flourishing as a result because people want to see yeah. radical change. So we don't want to see this kind of topical greenwashed company because consumers are smart now we understand what's bullshit right we can kind of we can smell it right um so i I do think that things are changing but it is uh a race towards utopia or oblivion right i don't know which (laughs) which one we're gonna get to first yeah uh yeah i think we're you know obviously like baby steps in the right direction and hopefully we'll end up in the place we want to be um but for me for me, like, uh, if I want the litmus test, I always just sort of look backwards. Uh, not that things were perfect in the past, but um, as far as the way, you know, at least a lot of natives here in here in North America lived, and all over the world, really, um, was so much closer to the land. Uh, you know, deep respect for the land and and its resources because we knew that it, it's not so much us that is providing what we need but we're being given these things and yeah we we help to produce them but but ultimately everything we have and the reason we're living here is because the earth is this abundant uh organism that i mean gives us everything we need to live and if we don't see that you know and and we're so self-centered that we believe uh that it's our actions only um you know we're not going to have that respect and we're not going to really see how important it is for us to preserve what we have right and we were talking uh with our friend jacob the other night who's um I believe it was a, a biologist or ecologist. He, I mean, but the thing that he's, he, he's working on, um, on, uh, fisheries and he's working on fishery solution because California, we, um, we've created a lot of dams, which are now impacting our salmon population, uh, and a lot of other fish populations. But the thing that stood up to me that he said was that, look, if you give nature an inch, it's going to take a mile. Yeah. Right. If you give our wildlife, um, an ability to reproduce, an ability to live in their natural habitat. They're going to take it. And when we now know what we need to do. I mean, I, I do want to go back to salmon because I think they're a fascinating animal and I want to mm-hmm. learn more about it. Um, <laughs> but it seems like blowing up our dams in California would be 
a next step to allow them <laughs> to reproduce um, and have the populations come back. I was just talking to a finish, uh, fisherman surfing in the other, uh, who's he's also a salmon fisherman. He said that they're probably going to close down the salmon season in the upcoming year because the numbers are so low. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think maybe... Uh, just give me... Sorry, just give me like a, a 10,000 foot view of salmon real quick. Hmm. Well, and, I, and where we are right now with California. Okay, well, I can't say that uh, I'd be the best person to ask this question, but... Um, what I would say is habitat is everything, no matter what species you're talking about. Um, when the habitat's there, most things flourish. And uh, when you take that away, uh, you, you also take away everything that relies on it. So um, the, the salmon have definitely been hammered from every angle, um, from uh, diversion of water to dams to not having their traditional habitat to spawn in, um, you know, overfishing, everything, you know, logging, everything that comes together um, to impact the fishery. And to me, that's like one of the, one of the saddest things ever because uh, salmon is such a wonderful I mean, standalone, it's a wonderful creature and it's a wonderful resource that, you know, if we had respect for it and uh, we were giving it what it needed to thrive, I mean, we'd be able to make so much more use of it and do it in a good way. Um, so if we lose, if we lose salmon, that would be devastating. Uh, you know, we're, we've lost so many things already and, uh, you know, when are we going to figure this out? I mean, and it's just such a battle because uh, people's needs compared to the needs of wildlife and how can we meld the two so that we're, uh, so that we can give back. I mean, right. it's, it's just not something we do anymore is to give back. Like, I think, you know, you look at, um, you look at like Ducks Unlimited and you look at these hunter-based conservation groups that tell are, me about ducks unlimited um well it's just a member-based group that that really is all about um using its funds to put back into habitat and you know unlike some environmental groups that are just on the attack 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 and use their money in lawsuits here's a group of hunters that love ducks and duck hunting so much that they're putting their money where their mouth is and trying to save habitat. Same thing with uh, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and groups like that. And that. You know, they love this animal so much and they want to provide, you know, future habitat. And so they try to protect land for that animal. And, I mean, it's just like a, a really awesome thing that they're doing. And... There are good people doing good work. Absolutely. And... Uh, you know, we're just going to have to, to learn how to work out our differences <laughs> and work together for a common goal, which is knowing that, uh, you know, we can all thrive. I'm not saying that, you know, the numbers of humans on this planet can uh, maintain and keep going in the direction that they're going because we just can't. Uh, our population continues to grow, but the earth isn't getting any bigger. And, uh, 
And so we're really going to have to start making some serious decisions about how we want to see our future. Is it going to be quality of life or is it going to be quantity of life? And so... Yeah, you know, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> we will see. Yeah, and I um, I think that what you're doing is uh, th- there's important work to be done. Because, again, when we started this conversation, we were talking about points of entry into larger subjects. And I, I'm not going to lie. I started hunting because I have some friends who I think are super cool who are bow hunters and we make a lot of our decisions based off of identity based off of people who we want to be like mm-hmm. and yeah I try and live as moral a life as I can but I'd be lying if I didn't say yeah. that I thought that it was just it's super cool yeah um, and as a result it's open it's you know I've probably reduced my meat consumption 70% since I went on my first hunt and that wouldn't have happened just with statistics, unfortunately. I wish that we that I was a more rational person. I wish that we as a species were more rational. But a lot of times it takes that experience. Yeah. It, you know, like the story that you told that's been etched into your mind forever that really changes your decisions. Right. Right on, man. <laughs> um, anything else? Where can people uh, find you or uh, get in touch in with these... Uh, these primitive arts gatherings. Uh, okay. Well, personally, I try not to be found. So <laughs> yeah, you'll be, you'll be <laughs> camping somewhere in I'll Northern California. Somewhere. Absolutely. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, as far as these primitive skills gatherings go, um, the one that we run here in California, which just ended a few weeks back is called the Buckeye gathering. And I believe it's a Buckeye org. Um, and we did two weeks this year. It was super awesome. Uh, but our gathering sort of based off some older ones uh, that have been going on in uh, uh, Arizona and Idaho. Uh, Winter Count and Rabbit Stick. And you could probably search for that. And uh, those will show up. <clears throat> as well as and there's more of them coming up, you know, yearly. More and more, more, and more of these gatherings are starting. Um, people are... It's... Uh, it's really starting to take off, um, you know, and what a lot of these gatherings are about is um, reconnection and, uh, you know, learning skills. You know, you go there, you learn these really cool skills, but so much more than that, it's about uh, creating community and reconnecting with the land on a really deep and personal level. And uh, and I really feel like that's what people want nowadays. Um more than anything because you know we sort of we've sort of been raised the way we've been raised you know in general terms here in this society and it's not very fulfilling um and people are they have this anxiety about them about like what am I doing with my life right like I was told I need to uh go to school and then I need to get a career and I need to get a wife and I need to have kids and then you know and then I'll be considered successful. But uh, <laughs> who's running this show? I'm not satisfied. Yeah. I'm hundred yeah. and fifty thousand dollars in debt, and I don't know what yeah. I want to do with my life. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's a lot of uh, unfulfilled and unhappy people in today's society, and uh, you know I really just feel like this reconnection is so important for people because um, you suddenly realize that. Uh, you know, every day can be this beautiful experience and not to be thinking so far off into the future about what my life will be like if I do all these things right. 
and then I'll be successful, but to really just enjoy each and every day that we have here and learn, you know, and to know just how important it is because none of us can predict our future and uh, no one knows when our time's going to come. And, uh, you know, you always hear it like, live like you were going to die tomorrow. Well, <laughs> can't exactly do that because that might not be real realistic, but, uh, but to truly appreciate every day that we do have here because it's, uh, I mean, it is, it's absolutely amazing. And like, do what fulfills you deeply. Um, someone told me not, not too long ago, and I really like this saying, was that uh, your talent plus helping people equals your purpose. And I love that saying because it's like, do what you love and help people, and that's your purpose. And, uh, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I'm going to leave you with a song by Sourgrass called Flashing Lights. And I will link to their band page in the show notes on my website, kyle.surf. If you feel inspired to support this show, head over to my website and donate on Patreon. I so appreciate all of you who donate, even just a few bucks a month. It helps keep this show going. You can also support the podcast at no cost to you by using the Amazon link on my website. Anything you buy using that link, I get a small portion of, and it doesn't cost you anything. Once again, don't forget to head over to the Shameless Sex Podcast and hear me ranting and raving. And until next time, hope you're all having a beautiful day. Get outside. Give someone a high five. I'll see you soon.
Let's go out.